Welcome to Conversation Mill. Join me as I talk to individuals stepping out to pursue their passions, from small business owners to community leaders, and learn with me how we can work together to support our local communities and local economies. Visit conversationmill.com to learn more, but now please join us in conversation. Zero waste. That is quite a commitment to live up to. But Moco Roots is committed to being a leader in the reuse and recycle space. In fact, in five years of business, they've never bought a trash bag. They are walking the talk, proving out how a circular economy can work within a restaurant. I was first drawn to Moco Roots for their plant-based and gluten-free offerings. I left my first visit full, having laughed and purchased one of their t-shirts and feeling inspired to work harder to implement zero waste in my own life. I'm certainly not there, but I'm working in that direction. I hope you walk away from this episode with two takeaways. Number one, that reducing waste and getting to zero waste is entirely possible if we make an effort and that it can become a habit. And number two, to patronize local food establishments versus chain fast food. Odds are, even if your locally owned cafe or restaurant is not tackling zero waste or plant-based choices like Moco Roots, they are contributing to your local community. So join me now in conversation with Moco Roots owner and visionary, Alexa. What's the importance of food in our communities? I mean, what could be more important than food in our communities? Probably just water and air. Um, you know, it's probably the third most important thing for everybody. And depending on what source you're getting your information from, Hawaii imports somewhere between 80 and 97 percent of the food. So, you know, where in that spectrum the actual number falls, I don't know. But we're pretty food insecure out here. So it's really important, I think, for businesses as well as people to focus on buying local, um, which is going to be like a domino effect to get people to grow more locally and then get us to a place of a a better position of food security out here. Before colonization, there were, they said there were a million people here and 100% Mm -hmm. of the food was grown locally, of course. And you know, now on Maui, there's like 150,000 or something plus tourists, which puts it, I guess, at about 250,000 at any point in time. Sure. And I mean, we're growing between three and 20 percent. So we can do a lot better. And it's necessary. What role do you want Moco Roots to play in what you're talking about, that food security um, hopefully just being a leader and setting a standard for the fact that it can be done and it can be done in a way that is, you know, profitable enough for other businesses to want to emulate that and follow it. There definitely is a movement just in, you know, society in general where people are now starting to like want to know where their food's coming from more than maybe ever before. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's like marketing value, obviously, to being local, there's, you know, people are putting like where things are grown on their menus on on all kinds of menus throughout the right. hotel restaurants and, you know, the most mainstream to the most like, you know, kind of like vegan, vegetarian, sustainable like we are that are really marketing farm to table. So the whole spectrum, I think, is like sees that there's value in that. 
And yeah, hopefully we can just be a leader and inspire more people to really be true to that and supporting local. You have three key aspects to your restaurant. And on your website, it's zero waste, farm to table, and plant-based. And I do want to um, break out all three of those in a minute, but how did Moco Roots come to be? I guess the short story is I was just kind of sick of not having a whole lot of options mm. um, at other restaurants. And and I understand why they did what they did. You know, a lot of places did never change their menu. You know, they're clearly catering to tourists who generally want fish, which I don't eat when they're out here. So they have the same menu, maybe like one vegetarian option. And that was the same forever because they're catering to people who come one time a year. They want the same dish that they had last year and the year before and whatever on their honeymoon, you know. So I get it. And that makes sense for them. But it was just out of like self-interest, generally speaking, because <laughs> yeah. I wanted some more food <laughs> options. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and is your background in food, in food and beverage? Not even a little bit. I like almost had no restaurant experience opening this place up, like to the extent that I can't believe that we pulled it off. You know, <laughs> when I look back, sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, we really gambled and won on that one because I did not know what I was doing. No, I went to school for engineering and then I was an artist full time for like the six years prior to this. So no, hardly any. Engineer and artist. Uh... I see how they can work together, but they also seem kind of far apart. Yeah. How, what inspired going to school for engineering? Yeah, I didn't, I guess, see like the possibility of a career with art. So Mm -hmm. it didn't seem to make sense to like go to school for it. I kind of thought that I would want it to just remain a hobby. So I went to school for engineering because I was really good at math and science. And, um, and then that just became by like my junior year, I was like, there is no way that I'm going to be able to like go into an office and sit in the meetings and talk about what we're going to talk about next meeting. Like just, you know, (laughs) the sort of bureaucratic like element of, you know, an engineering business or like businesses that big, which is where I would have ended up working, just seemed soul sucking and terrible. So I just completed the degree and got out and, you know, tried to figure out what I was going to do after that that had nothing to do with it. (laughs) That's awesome. So let's talk about those three key aspects of the restaurant. The first one is zero waste. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the out-of-box things that you guys are doing to live up to that mission of zero waste? So that kind of breaks down into two ends, like on our purchasing end as well as, and then the consumer end. Mm -hmm. So on our purchasing end, it is a little trickier and it's also not what people see. You know, we fold into our buying like what kind of packaging things come in. Sometimes it requires like a lot of finessing of a farm who normally is used to packaging it a certain way with a certain amount of plastic or whatever and being like, hey, we would really love it if you could just do that without the plastic. And sometimes that takes a long time, but we've been able to get um, some farms to like switch their packaging for us, which is awesome to like yeah. less just in cardboard boxes, which we save and we give back to the farmers to reuse or like whoever wants to take them. And then as they get kind of gross, we just use them on our farm um, like as weed mat. So mm. we just put them under underneath mulch and they keep the weeds from growing pretty well. And um, and then as far as the stuff that like isn't grown here, like our olive oil, we get it in these like 55 gallon drums and then we just put it in small containers to use here. And then that avoids all plastic. Mm -hmm. Um, which is great. And then those I just give to farmers to use as rain barrels 
And there, I've got like a line of farmers who are always texting me and be like, you got another drum for me. So, so that's cool. Cause those get reused completely. And, um, and then like our flour and things like that, those just come in like 50 pound, like brown paper bags. So that's really nice. Cause that we just use those as trash bags mm-hmm. afterwards. We've never bought a trash bag. I feel like that's notable. We've been open five years almost and never bought a single trash bag. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's so cool. And, um, okay. And then on the consumer end, um, that's what everybody sees. We don't do any single-use stuff for to-go or really dine-in, obviously, but that's, you know, more consistent with a restaurant. doesn't do a lot of single-use for dine-in. So for to-go, for, like, our sandwiches and our wraps, we do them in tea leaves that are locally grown and tied with a piece of, like, a banana tree. Like, as the leaves fall down from the tree, then they leave this kind of, like, fabric-y mm. um, material. We just call them husks. And then, yeah, so tea leaves tied with that. And then for, like, the salads and stuff, we do these reusable metal containers, and then they're on deposit. So people take them, pay $10, bring them back, get their $10 back. That's so awesome. That's the consumer end. And that's what, you know, people are most familiar with, of course, because that's what they see. I know the first time we ate here, um, we had we ate in-house and mm-hmm. then had leftovers to take home. And... That and sitting there, we're like, oh, that's right. Like, we have to have our own leftover containers to like take this <laughs> home. And which we have camping stuff in the car all the time. Yeah. So we had containers. Oh, that's cool. But we were like, hopefully they don't deal with this a lot. But consumers coming in and being like, well, I don't have anything to take this home with. I'm not paying $10 for that. Do you get that kickback or are people it's, more excited? I would say it's definitely more excitement and appreciation than like negative feedback. It definitely does happen sometimes, but it's not common. You know, the positives certainly outweigh the negatives. And even if the negative feedback outweighed the positive, we would still do it. Exactly. But, but generally speaking, you know, people are stoked. Yeah. And everyone who like lives here is like, okay, well, I'm going to come back at some point, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people on vacation, too, we can usually be like, well, I mean, obviously, you don't have to bring it back. You can just keep it. It's not like I'm keeping tabs on you. And then people <laughs> use them at home and they'll, like, send us photos on Instagram of, like, their lunch in Iowa or whatever, like, in their mocha container. <laughs> That's cool. So, yeah. But the important thing with, like, reusables, you know, to create a metal tin does take more resource- resources than to create, like, a throwaway plastic one. So, with a reusable to be be valuable in like the sustainability space, it does need to get reused, mm-hmm. which is, you know, why we incentivize people to bring them back um, by giving them their money back or when people just keep them like, well, make sure you're using them to offset some other usage because that's like where the value in a reusable lie. Yeah. Yeah. The The second aspect is the field to table. Let's talk a little bit about that. And you have your own farm as well, correct? We have two. Um, They're both small. Well, the the one that we just got is large acre wise, but we just got it. So and there wasn't anything planted on it before. Mm -hmm. So we're just getting things planted like we haven't harvested that much. And then over the winter, um, it's up in Waipoli, like up in Upper Kula. So the soil temperatures are really low in the winter, which doesn't allow a lot of the nutrients in the soil to be available to the plants. So we've just been kind of testing some things out and waiting to plant a ton. But I guess it was the original property that they grew the Maui sweet onions, Mm, which is what we were told like 100 years ago. So we planted a ton of those, which would be really cool. And then some strawberries. And then we're going to do like, you know, root vegetables and lettuces and things like that that do really well up there. And then we our other farm is on this side. So it's hot and dry. So we grow taro and yucca and bananas and papayas and kale actually does really well there, which people don't necessarily think and collards and things like that. 
Um, so we do supply quite a bit of our own stuff. And what came first, the farm or the restaurant? The farm did, but we were intending on doing the restaurant when we got the farm. Okay. So besides your farm, um, what are some of the other local farms that you're sourcing from? Okoa, we get a lot of stuff from um, Lapa'au, Mother Mushrooms for obviously mushrooms as well. Let's see. Kula Country Farms. And then who else? So a bunch of our tarot comes from K&I, and I and i do not know the names of all of those farms. But yeah, we we get a lot of our stuff from Local Harvest, and they're like a delivery service for farms that don't do their own delivery. So sure. some of them that we get our own delivery, that they you know that do their own delivery, like I know them specifically. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like Local Harvest sources from all the farms like upcountry, and then they deliver. So I don't always know what the yeah. farm's name is. Was that a challenge when setting up your business to find, or I guess, did you build your menu around what you could find, right? Because I think a lot of restaurants go in and they're like, this is what we're serving. This is our menu. But now you have to source, like if you're going to do lobster, now you have to source that lobster. Yeah. And if you can get it from wherever cheaper, you might do that. But So were you... Were you building a menu around what you could find or did you have a menu in mind and then had to source those things? We definitely built the menu around what we could find and we changed it a little bit. Like we used to have buffalo cauliflower on the menu for a long time. And then kind of recently, the farm that we were getting cauliflower from forever just got annihilated by deer. Like they Mm. ate all the cauliflower. So it was going to be months before we could get it again. So we just took it off the menu rather than like buying mainland. So occasionally we can get from somebody local but you know and then like the taro and the yuca and the cassava which are all like pretty culturally significant crops here like we built a lot of our menu around that like our taro burger has been here on the menu for the whole time and is still there we use taro and and ulu on a ton of stuff just because they're i they're like my favorite ingredients to work with personally because they're super like doughy and cool and um i love the texture and i love what you can do with it so you know a lot of the menu is kind of centered around those as well. The last aspect is that the menu is completely plant-based. Why was that important to you? There wasn't a, or there weren't a whole lot of other options for like cooked food or even like dinner out mm-hmm. here um, in terms of plant-based food. So, I mean, that was part of it that I felt like the market wanted it. It's also how I eat. So if I was going to be in the kitchen, like, I don't know how to cook meat. I've never cooked meat. I don't. I don't know. So um, I shouldn't be responsible for cooking meat for other people because I don't think I'm going to do a very good job. And yeah, so that was like the menu that I could get behind. I thought that people wanted it. How long have you been plant-based? Probably 17 years. And what was your reasoning for shifting into a plant-based diet? I think I was like around a lot of people who were, and I, I guess I would like to think that even if I hadn't been around them, I maybe would have realized that that felt good to me but it was certainly you know that was a catalyst i think (laughs) so we were just kind of discussing the menu a little bit let's talk a little bit about the recipes was that something that you created on your own or who collaborated with you to create these menu items and these recipes the original menu i pretty much created um and then we had an amazing head chef from like within a month of when we opened until the beginning of COVID when she left and went back to the mainland. So a lot of the stuff she came up with and then a couple items like here and there were from, you know, other people who worked in the kitchen who had a great idea. 
You mentioned COVID. How did you guys make or how did you guys survive through COVID? Because you are a small operation here. Yeah, which helped a little bit, actually. Okay. You know, I would think about Merriman's or something that's like this huge restaurant. I've never been in their kitchen, but I, you know, for the volume that they generally do, like it has to be a huge kitchen. Sure. So I think like for a place that is really big, it would be tough to run at such a small volume because, you know, everything's far apart. Your kitchen's huge. You can't be like, you can't have like one guy in the kitchen. Whereas like we're a small restaurant, we could have one guy in the kitchen because everything's kind of close together. So it it was definitely like a little bit of a business model change. Like we consolidated hours, we consolidated staff, which worked out well because a lot of people like were moving back to, were wanting to move back to the mainland anyways with their families. So um, we ran the place with like three people total for, I don't know, six months or something. <laughs> when were you able to, so how long were you shut down for? And then when were you able to open back up to full capacity? We never shut down completely. Oh, we great. just did lunch. And then there were, I think, like four other restaurants on the west side that were open at all. So although there was, you know, a tiny pool of people here, we had a bigger piece of that smaller pool just because there was nothing else open. And then we started kind of focusing on like produce boxes and pre-made stuff that people could like take and bake. Um in the beginning when people were really cautious about being out and being around other people. So we tried to like shift to that a little bit. And there were definitely days where like produce boxes were the most that we sold mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. like hardly any like prepared food or, you know, very little or like more of the to go stuff. So, um, I would, you know, it's, it started coming back slowly, like in the fall, I guess of 2020, mm -hmm. we I'm trying to think we like reopened for indoor. We moved everything outdoor, like just in the very beginning. And you mentioned that you never had any restaurant experience before this. Very <laughs> so <little. laughs> what pushed you to go, OK, I have a farm and now I'm going to open a restaurant. I know you mentioned you saw a need for it here, but it's still that's a big leap. Yeah. Did you yeah. go right to this brick and mortar? Well, I had started this like gourmet popsicle business called Maui Tropsicles. Okay. So that I think had been going for like a year or two, maybe a year, which sort of was part of like what segued into this. Gotcha. So I did have a little bit of like a following with that and had done farmers markets and events and was in a couple like wholesale locations, some grocery stores and stuff. I mean, I did have like a little bit of experience yeah. with that. And I had worked at like a juice bar before that, but that was really it. Yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like I think I was also sick of like setting things up outside mm, from yeah. when I was an artist. I did these art shows like on the mainland for like two years where I'd like set up a tent and set up all my walls and all my paintings and stuff. And it's always bad weather, like yeah. always, <laughs> you yeah. know, it's yeah. always terrible in one way or the other. It's too hot or it's too windy. Wind's the worst. You know, it's raining and nobody shows up, whatever. So I think I was just like, I need like a nest that uh -huh. is not going to be like subject to weather, which, yeah, was part of the reason I was like, I don't want to do the food truck. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do any of that. I just want to not have to set something up every day. What was the <laughs> biggest challenge trying to get open? Um, What was the biggest challenge trying to get open? Getting the lease here, actually. That was just time consuming. And they kind of like dicked us around mm -hmm. and said they were going to like get us the lease and like from the time that they told us they were going to write a lease for us in this exact space like it was over a year wow. of just waiting and then being like yeah yeah we're on it and then i think they were actually trying to get another tenant 
in here instead that was like a a chef that was sort of well known on island. Okay. So and like he ended up opening somewhere else. But I think that's what happened. So they were just like dragging us along as like a backup option and eventually their first option fell through. So <laughs> and did you pick this location for a certain reason? I mean, there is really good traffic here in the center, but was there more rhyme and reason behind that or there weren't a lot of spaces available. So that was, I mean, the, yeah, the availability of spaces, especially that had already been restaurants, because we didn't want to spend a ton of money on a build out. Sure. This one had been a pizza place. So it already had a hood. It already had a grease trap, which are like two of your main costs. Um, so that is part of what made this one really appealing. It's a good size for like a proof of concept. Something much bigger would have been a little daunting, I think. And it's not the best option to get into like a huge rent commitment when you really don't know if your concept's going to work yet. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of reasons, this worked. The parking was something that we really wanted because we knew that we wanted to like have a local following. And if we were on Front Street where there wasn't any parking or whatever, like it would be tricky to be able to cater to locals in the way that we've been able to here. But then the downside of this space is that we don't get like the French street traffic of tourists. But I think that the positives outweigh the negatives here in in terms of like what we gain by being accessible to locals. Do you see more local traffic or more tourist traffic? I think when it's like the slower times of year, I would gather that it's more 50-50 and like you know, December, the holidays, spring break, whatever. It's probably more like 75, 25 tourists. Right. I guess. And people are seeking out because there isn't a lot of plant-based options on island, period. Yeah. And on this side, I can't think of another one just off the top of my head. Choice. Okay. Which is right over there. But, you know, in their space, they don't have a grease trap. They don't have a hood. So they can't really, you know, they're limited in what they can do in terms of cooked food mm-hmm. where we have like a full kitchen. So sure. we can cook more stuff. So it's just a different, you know, type of plant-based food, really. Mm-hmm. You have lots of merchandise. I'm actually wearing one of the shirts <laughs> that I got when I was here last time. Um, I love that on you, by thank, the way. Thank you. <laughs> Um, but what's so fun about your merchandise is that it's edgy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my uh, shirt, and I'll post a picture of it when we do this episode, but my, my shirt says um, grow some and then it has breadfruit fruit on it. And for those of you who don't know what breadfruit looks like, it's like two big balls. Um, so your merchandise is very edgy, catchy, maybe a little irreverent. Was that purposeful or is that just your sense of humor? It's my sense of humor. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) totally. (laughs) And what's the reaction um, from from customers? I mean, mostly awesome. Mostly people are like, they They laugh and it's hilarious. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't wait to wear this eat more vagina shirt in, (laughs) you know, Ohio or whatever. And people be like, what does that mean? Uh Um, So yeah, every once in a while, somebody will be like offended. But I heard this comedian actually yesterday say that being offended by jokes is such a sign of privilege. Like if you have Mm. real problems, a joke is not even on your radar of something. Like if you're hungry, you're not going to be offended by a joke. If you're scared of, you know, safety in your neighborhood, like you're not going to be offended by a joke. Like it's just such a sign of privilege to mm. be able to have the brain capacity to be offended by a t-shirt. Oh, you know, that is so <laughs> true. I love that. Yeah, I was like that's 
there's no fat on that. Like it's perfect. It makes perfect sense. It just yeah. really captures everything. <laughs> For small business owners or people that are considering doing something like you did and open opening um, a, a food and beverage establishment, what are like the top three things that you would give them as advice if they're considering doing that? Just do it. You know, it's never going to be like the right time. You're never going to feel fully prepared to do anything different ever, really, like whether that's open a restaurant or, you know, that's that a painting is done or whatever, like applying for a job. You you're probably never going to feel like completely prepared to do it. But don't let like perfection get in the way of greatness like just go ahead and do it and like figure it out as you go you know you need to be like good enough in the beginning to be able to function um but you're gonna figure so much out like in the first even day of opening that it's gonna give you so much more clarity than like a million years of planning without being open Mm -hmm. so that's one thing um you kind of mentioned um some of the challenges getting started. But once you got open, what were some of the things that you learned pretty quickly? You know, like general like kitchen setup, you know, which we hadn't run a restaurant with this menu or anything before. So that was like one thing that was kind of a clusterfuck in the beginning that, Mm -hmm. you know, with just one day of operation was like, oh, we need to move this here and this here. And then the flow makes a lot more sense. So that was immediate. I would definitely suggest like not doing it on your own, like Mm. hire a GM right out of the gate, like a really good one if you can. Um, It's really helpful, or at least for my personality to like have somebody who you feel like you can like really bounce ideas off of. And then you can kind of like come to with like, let's figure this out together just to keep, I guess, your own ideas in check. You know, I don't necessarily know like if my ideas are perfect, like I want to get people's feedback and um you know, being able to do that, Mm -hmm. I would imagine for most people is probably pretty valuable. Yeah. I love that you bring that up because I think that it is difficult if you have a vision and you have an idea Mm -hmm. and you're like, this is exactly what I want it to look like. This is exactly how I want it to happen to be able to take that criticism from other people, from somebody else, yeah, whether you trust them or not, for them to be like, I don't think it should be that color or I don't think (laughs) I don't think this tastes good. I don't think it should be our featured item. Uh, But you want to hear that if somebody else thinks it doesn't taste good, like we should listen to that. And it might just be that they hate beets or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they're never going to like anything with beets. And like, that's okay. And you need to fold that criticism in and, you know, take it with a grain of salt of like, okay, well, this person was never going to like anything with beets ever, but other people do like beets. But um, you want to know if people don't like your stuff. Yeah. Because <laughs> that might be a reflection that no one's going to like your stuff. Yeah. And save you a lot of time and money to mm-hmm. get that feedback early on. Yeah. You guys sell some to-go items here in reused jars and containers. Mm-hmm. What is that... Um, process because obviously you need to sanitize those jars and glasses i think again i think there's just such this idea of like things can't be done like it's easier to just buy something that's already hasn't been used Mm -hmm. i can just pour in i don't have to think about you know to go containers it's just easier um so what's the process there that you are you reusing jars that you already have here in the restaurant are you collecting them from people We definitely accept donations of jars, like our more bottle kind of jars that are 
like our repurposed liquor bottles. We have like enough of those from our bar that we don't really need those, but we don't buy hardly anything in like wide mouth jars. So we do accept donations of those. And I think what I'm going to do, because most of the time people bring them and the labels still on them, which we clean off and it takes some time. And then of course we sterilize and sanitize them. But I think I'm going to start doing like a, like a buy buyback or whatever mm. program where like, if you have a bunch of your house and you can clean the glue and the label off, then we'll buy them for some amount. And then that saves us that time. And then the sanitizing and the sterilizing is really easy. So we like, you know, sanitize them in the sink, of course, like wash them, sanitize them in the sink, and then we sterilize them in the oven. So, you know, but that part's really easy if we didn't have to scrape off the glue and the label. (laughs) And that's so great because there's so many places right now that aren't recycling glass. Yeah. Um, I've been living in Greenville, South Carolina on and off for two years and uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on right now with just their entire recycling program. But the mm-hmm. entire time I lived there, there was nowhere you could recycle glass. Interesting. I wonder why that is, because glass is infinitely recyclable. Like I was pretty up on all of the issues with recycling plastic and it all used to go to China and they would melt it down. But like plastic isn't infinitely recyclable. It degrades mm-hmm. every single time. So generally like a plastic water bottle will get melted down and become fabric. And then there's very little you can do with it from there. So, or it'll get mixed in with like 75% new plastics, but there's a finite amount of like the use that you can because the polymer chains just degrade over time. Whereas like glass and metal, you can just, you know, melt them down a million times and it's going to be exactly the same as it was the first time. So that's kind of strange. I mean, glass is heavy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it probably recycling's a, a business. So if it's not financially viable to do it, they're not going to do it. It's not like a public utility. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people don't take that into account when they, you know, are thinking about like, well, why isn't this recycled here, well, you know, nobody's buying it. Like, they're selling it as a raw material. Why, in your opinion, is it so hard to get people into the mindset of reuse and recycle? I guess just conditioning, probably, because it seems like some other there are certain other countries that really require it. And if you had to do it always growing up, like, you're kind of conditioned to do it. That definitely hasn't been the case here. Mm-hmm. The infrastructure infrastructure for it like isn't great for whatever reason that may be it could be different in different parts of the country i'm not sure here it's tricky because you know they're not melting glass down and making new bottles on maui right so they ship it to oahu it's heavy that takes a lot of fossil fuels and then it goes probably to la and then to asia that's the case with plastics i actually don't know where where this glass is going and where they're melting it down and making new bottles maybe somewhere in the mainland. But, you know, even like think about the the carbon footprint of like that transport. So yeah. possibly some people like don't think that that weighs out and it's just better to throw it in the landfill. You know, maybe they think that it actually is more environmentally friendly to do that. I don't think that's the case, but I do see that that whole system's really bulky mm-hmm. of like, you know, I take it to Olawalu and then, you know, I wash it, which uses water, take it to Olawalu and then somebody trucks it from Olawalu to Kahului to whatever the waste management thing is there. And then it gets shipped somewhere else, which like that takes a lot. Yeah. But, you know, what doesn't take a lot is like somebody bringing it to Mocha Roots and then us <laughs> washing and sterilizing it and then putting beans in it or whatever. Yeah. Like that, I think, is like a way better it's definitely like a smaller closed circuit than 
the recycling program of like shipping it fucking could be 5,000 miles. Like, yeah, I could see why people would think that that maybe isn't the best option. And then you can come back and buy your beans <laughs> in a bottle roots, and then you might get your bottle back. <laughs> yeah, we've tried to um, have people we've tried to do like a refill night and people weren't that into it. They wanted to like it's people just kind of want to grab the jar and it's in there, which I get. So I don't mind that, like, if they drop it off one time and then we have all the jars available another time, yeah. it's not a problem. Um, we haven't really talked too much about your farm yet. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about about what you're doing on the farm? You mentioned what you grow, but what's the vision for the farm? Just continue to grow food for mocha roots and others or... Certainly the one on the west side is not big enough to really be supplying to anyone else. Like during COVID when when it was really slow, we did like donate a bunch to the food bank when we had like, you know, 200 pounds of eggplant a week, which we certainly like didn't have a use for at that time because we'd geared up for like normal operations. So there, you know, was a time where we were producing in excess of what we needed. I don't anticipate that that's going to be the case again. Um, But it's a possibility with like the Waipoli spot, just because it's so big that we might be producing extra that we could sell or donate or whatever. Um, And then the other big thing, like we take all of our compost there and we just create new soil. The soil here was pretty degraded, like completely void of nitrogen, just Mm based on the fact that it doesn't rain here very much, so things don't break down very quickly. It was monocropped for 100 years with sugarcane and pineapple on the west side. So um, the soil, you know, needs love constantly. And some places, soil's in great condition anyways. But I really have, like, an affinity for, like, building soil, Mm. as, like, not sexy as that sounds. It's like, I really, really love it. And I love putting mulch on things and, like, pulling the mulch back. When it's been moist, you know, we got rained on for a couple days and you see all this like mycelium network and you know that like this soil is alive and there's all these bugs in it and worms in it and you can just like at least i can like i can (laughs) feel that it's like good soil and the plants are going to be really happy there so um you know trying to build soil like on this property that had pretty like degraded soil and to the extent that like our little farm can change the not to say the climate here, but what I had heard like hundreds and hundreds of years ago, like before they cut everything down and when there was sandalwood and when there were a lot of trees here that I'd heard that it did rain on the west side quite a bit. Um, and that changed just the nature of the humidity in the air on the west side because there were all these trees like retaining moisture and then they created their own little ecosystem. So clearly like our five acre farm isn't going to do that, but like we might as well do what we can and like hopefully other places around will and make the West side green and see what happens. And also it mitigates fire issues. Yeah. So that's good. No, I had heard the same thing when I uh, did a tree planting up on Haleakala with um, Skyline Conservation. Cool. He was just talking about how it was jungle, like from the mountain to the ocean, basically, yeah. which, yeah, then helps create mm-hmm. moisture and cloud cover and, and all sorts of things. So it really does impact climate as well as erosion. Yeah. If you have better soil and yeah. rooted soil, exactly, you're preventing a lot of that erosion. Yeah. Desertification of like the soil in areas is, is not good. And if you know, if it's super dry and nothing's growing and then it rains and then it washes away all your topsoil and one, that's bad for the reef mm-hmm. where all of that's going, which I don't know if you had noticed, but since we had that fire in 
when was that? November, maybe? That burned like a ton of the hill over Uh here. When we got that big rain in December, like the water really has not cleared up. Like yeah. at guardrails, the places that I usually surf, it's still just chocolate milk out there, which I don't ever remember it getting so nasty there before. Like even when we had big rains, I feel like it was brown for like a day or two and then it got like a lot nicer. But that's definitely evidence of like if you don't have anything growing and then you get rain, your topsoil is just gone. Mm-hmm. So oh, making sure so that like important. something's in there is really good to retain retain your soil when it does rain. Yeah. Um, I just have two more questions sure. for you. We talked a little bit um, off podcast, off camera, <laughs> <laughs> about um, just kind of like the political system and, and what's going on. But here on Maui, are, do you get do you interact with that a lot? Do you like because being yeah being a small business owner is it helpful to your business to do so, or are you just like let me? I'm just going to stay under the radar and do what I need to do. I mean, I wish we were all allowed to stay under the radar and do what we need to do without so much like government yeah. intervention. And I didn't mean that in a yeah. like that you are doing something that you need to say. I just meant like, are you just like, I'm just going to be quiet, do like follow the red tape and move forward? Or are you active in um, politics? I can't even like we talked about, like I met Tulsi years and years ago, but that was before I was involved in this and um, really before I knew who she was. But other than that, like, I don't even think I've really interacted with, like, any politicians, really. I mean, we did kind of have to take a stance with the mandates, which mm-hmm. was by nature what they were designed to do. Either you had to comply and you were going to alienate the people who thought it was bullshit, or you had to take a stand and you were going to alienate some people who were for them. Mm-hmm. So that was, I mean, the only time I think really like we have been political in any way, but it was because you had to be. Like yeah. you had to choose a side and you had to go with it. And even like not doing anything was choosing a side. So um, yeah, other than that, I mean, I think it's probably better that like you keep like politics away from business because like we were sure. saying earlier in this bipartisan system, 50% of people are going to hate you you know, with whatever you do. <laughs> so you might as well not <laughs> choose yeah. a side publicly, which is, yeah. And for our listeners <laughs> who maybe don't know who we're talking about, Tulsi is Tulsi Gabbard, who's mm-hmm. a um, politician here in Hawaii that gained some national recognition. I think most people might recognize the name, but sure. Um, also, shout out to Tulsi to come do this podcast. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and come eat at Moku for sure. Yes, yes. We'll do the interview here. Yeah, we get perfect. it. <laughs> um, and then the last question I have for you, which is a question I ask all my guests. Um, we sat down and we had a conversation today. But if you could sit down with anyone living or dead and have a conversation, who would you like to sit down with and talk to? I was hoping you phrased that question slightly differently because I had a joke with it, which was a Ron White bit. He was trying to sell. uh, He was doing like a radio tour in England. And they were like, if you would like if you had a chance to sit down with anyone alive or dead, who would you sit down with? Um, and he said alive and they were like, no, 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 that's not what I asked. He was like, yeah, nobody knows me here. I'm a comedian. I'm trying to sell some fucking tickets. Like, yeah, it was a joke. So I was hoping you would say it so that I could say alive. (laughs) Um, man, I don't have a good answer for that except for the Ron White joke. (laughs) Um, Let's just say Ron White. I don't know. While we're on that topic, (laughs) a comedian probably, I don't know, maybe Dave Chappelle or Bill Burr, Ron White. 
I'm really into comedy, so it'd be really cool to meet one of them. That's awesome. I would (laughs) love to sit down with Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I saw that you've been doing some open um, mic nights here, and you've had a comedian here before. Is that something you guys are going to continue? Yeah, and um, we have a show booked on March 4th for a comedian, Angie the Diva. She's actually based on Maui, but she... You know, there's not a whole lot of comedy here, so she doesn't really do shows here that much. She mostly tours and headlines shows not on Maui, but she is doing a show here March 4th, which is going to be awesome. And we had um, a guy in December for our first show, which we just totally crushed it. It was awesome. Um, Super funny and just like super good vibe and everything. And we are actually going to be moving locations in like a year to a much bigger space. And we're really going to like lean into the events and hopefully get a bunch of comedy and hopefully like create like a West side comedy scene would be really, really cool. Cause yeah, I'm super into it. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's so exciting to hear. Yeah. It'll be a lot easier there. Like here, the space is a little awkward. It worked, but there, I mean, the space is just absolutely perfect for concerts and comedy and whatever. Like it's a huge space. So we could have some really big names out here if we could book them. Awesome. Well, I'll yeah. um we'll definitely stay in touch and once you guys get closer, we'll make sure we uh we post it and yeah. get, get people excited about it. Awesome. Yeah, it'll be cool. Thank you so much for joining uh, me on the podcast and talking about what you do. I appreciate it so much. Thanks. Thanks for asking me to be on. <laughs> Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish, while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com, where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week, and as always, thank you for your support.